0: Section 27 of the Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 17. Norman Administration, Part 2. The manor was nothing more than the ancient township which had by now fallen to a feudal lord. They had, as before shown, virtually existed in Anglo-Saxon times— in the case of those thanes who had gained independent rights of jurisdiction, conveyed the grants of sack and soak. In Norman times they were so much increased that nearly the whole of England was divided into manors, either of the king or belonging to some lord with the exception of a few enfranchised boroughs. These manners would be thus divided, part the lord would keep for his own use, under the name of the demesne. The rest would be granted out to freehold tenants on varying terms of tenure, or would form the waste over which the Lord retained the right of sporting, while the tenants of the manor might there feed their cattle or cut their turf and peat. Of the demain again, part was retained in the actual occupation of the Lord, his park and farm, which were termed the demain proper. On the rest, the villains would be settled. Bound to the soil, they might not leave it, and in return for their small holdings they had to till the demain proper. If the land were sold, they passed with it. In these manners the old town Reeve had given up his place to the steward of the lord, but in other respects the procedure was the same as in the popular courts. The rights of jurisdiction varied according to the terms of Grant. All had their court baron, representing the gamote of the Anglo-Saxon township, in which bylaws were passed and local business transacted, and all their customary court for the business of the villainage. In these cases the lords were not exempt from the jurisdiction of the hundred court. Others would have by grant court's leet for criminal purposes, and others a right to hold views of frank pledge as they were called, when the manor would be free from the court's leet and turn of the sheriff respectively. In some great baronial jurisdictions, which included almost the whole shire, the lords enjoyed entire independence of the sheriff and the shire court, and the suitors to their courts, exemption from all attendance at the popular courts. The number of these greater jurisdictions, which were hereditary, always had a tendency to increase, and were dangerous, not only as decreasing the profits of the popular courts and the crown but as serving as a basis for baronial tyranny in such times as those of Stephen. There was no means of checking them except by increasing the central power, and it was not till the reign of Henry II that they were compelled to admit the justices of heir to exercise jurisdiction in them. There was no privilege to which the Norman kings clung so closely or which caused so much misery and discontent as their exclusive right of enjoying the sport in the royal forests. William had desolated the new forest with cold-blooded indifference, and the curse had been visited on his family. Rufus had much increased the forests. Even Henry had refused to part with any when he had to appeal to the people in his charter, and added more to their number. At a somewhat later date it was computed that there were sixty-seven forests, besides thirty chases and seven hundred and eighty-one parks. Over these, the jurisdiction was vested in the forest courts. Here a distinct system of law prevailed. They were ruled by royal officials independent of the ordinary judges of the popular courts and curia regis, not bound by the common law and irresponsible except to the king. Their laws and customs were their own and variable until Henry II issued the first forest code. Even then, marked by such severity that it is said the punishment for breach of forest law was heavier than for heresy. Nothing proves more strongly the arbitrary rule of the Norman kings, or their selfishness, than the stubbornness with which they clung to their forests and forest courts. In Anglo-Saxon times, Some of the more fortunate boroughs had gained an exemption from the Hundred Court and enjoyed their own rights of jurisdiction in their ward and borough moats, with an organization similar to that of the popular courts. They still, however, remained subject to the Shire Court, and the sheriff collected from them the royal dues. By the Norman conquest they fell into the domain of some great lord or of the king and the status of citizens exactly corresponded with that of the inhabitants of the rural districts, those who held property being termed burgage tenants, corresponding to the soakage tenants, and the lower class of citizens to the villains of the rural manor. For any further advance, they now had to look to the grant of the lord or king in whose domain they lay. Those who were not rich enough to buy these privileges or were in the domains of some lord who had not the power of granting these immunities remained much in the condition in which the norman conquest found them and survived to the present day in our market towns with a humble machinery of police and magistracy in connection with their markets the more privileged gained their charters from king or lord having one independent jurisdiction the next step was to procure an independent administration This, as was so often the case in Norman times, first took the form of a fiscal question. Hitherto, the sheriff had himself compounded for the dues of the burghs in the farm of his county, and levied the dues upon the town himself and to his own profit. Probably in many cases more was exacted than was legal, but the towns had no remedy. It was natural, therefore, that they should wish to compound directly with the king or lord— and thus be freed from the common valuation of the shire. This was done by obtaining charters, by which the burghers themselves rented the borough dues, paying to the king or lord the rent of the borough firma, burgi, and collected it themselves from the citizens. Thus they were freed from the exactions of the sheriff and changed their varying dues into a fixed and certain rent. The grant of the firm implied an emancipation from villain services And since the firm was generally granted to the ward mode of the town, all members of that court, holders of land or houses within the borough, henceforth held their land on free burgage tenure. This, with a few other privileges, was all that was gained in Norman times. Side by side with the growth of the boroughs, the system of guilds had arisen. For the origin of these, we must look to Anglo Saxon times the distinguishing feature of early Teutonic society lay in its strong spirit of local organization, in itself probably a remains of the old family tie. As this family tie became weakened, they seemed to have sought for some other personal bond, founded on the analogy of the family which might take its place. Hence the rise of guilds which appear universally in Western Europe, taking various forms, of which the following are the most important. Religious or social guilds. These were probably the earliest and resorted to for some religious purpose, such as prayers for quick and dead, burial of their dead, representation of miracle plays, alms, and good works. Others again formed friendly societies for mutual help and protection. If one misdo, runs one of their bylaws, let all bear it, Let all share the same lot. Others, under the name of frith guilds, formed assurance companies against loss or theft, to give compensation when any member had suffered, and to avenge all insults as common ones. It is to these frith guilds that we probably owe the idea which afterwards led to the system of frank pledge. At times, all these objects would be united in one guild. The existence of such associations as these and their rules of membership speak highly for the peace and order loving character of the people, and as they survived the Norman conquest, they affected our after history. No rebel or man of bad fame might be enrolled a member, and such offences worked instant forfeiture, while a rule from a guild of later date speaks highly for their moral and industrial influence. If any man fall poor, from using to lie long in bed, and at rising off his bed will not work but go to the tavern, wine, ale, wrestling, and in this manner falleth poor, that man shall never have help or good of the company, neither in life or death, but shall be put out of the company. As trade increased, the same spirit of association led to the rise of merchant and craft guilds. Of these the merchant guilds probably existed in some few cases before the conquest, but rapidly increased during the Norman period. They were associations of merchants uniting for purposes of mutual assistance in trade. They gained by charters the monopoly of trade, and then gradually obtained the virtual government of the towns by the following means. The guild, including as it did all the important men of the town, would necessarily be members of the borough courts. Thus, the members of the guild and the governing body of the town would be composed of the same persons, and guild law would tend to become town law. But further, in some cases the merchant guilds seem themselves to have purchased the firma burgi, and in virtue of this, would have the right of assessing the contributions upon the citizens. Thus membership in a merchant guild would be indispensable for the full status of a burgher, who thereby gained a stronger spirit of cooperative union. Still, the governing body of the town and the guild were not as yet identical. Their organization was separate, and the influence of the guild was indirect rather than actual or avowed. Beneath these merchant guilds, the lower craft guilds or associations of craftsmen had begun to arise, but for their future development, and the consequent struggle between them and the merchant guilds for the municipal government, we have to wait for a later date. The towns then, in Norman times, had gained an independent jurisdiction, some independence of administration in fiscal matters and various privileges. But they were still subject to the Shire Court. They were in no sense a corporate unity as they subsequently became— and their organization was still that of the rural hundreds and townships. The condition of London was indeed somewhat more advanced. By the charter of Henry I, it received the firm of the whole county of Middlesex, with the right of appointing the sheriff. The citizens were freed from all jurisdiction of any other shire court, and from the obligation of trial by combat, together with other privileges and immunities, they had their folk mote, answering to the shire court elsewhere, their ward mote, corresponding to the rural hundred courts, and their hustings court or weekly meeting of the citizens in common. Still even London, though far in advance of any other towns, had no municipality as yet. It was, in fact, a civic shire, as the other towns were civic hundreds, and under their folk mote or shire court, the several townships, parishes, and manors of which it was composed retained their separate jurisdiction and organization. The military system of the Norman kings was threefold. One, the Anglo-Saxon organization of the militia was retained. By this, every man was bound to serve the king on foot in times of danger. They were marshaled under the sheriff of each shire, and each man received the sum of ten shillings from his county To meet the expenses of his service. 2. To this, the Normans added the feudal levy, by which every tenant by night service had to furnish one fully armed horseman for forty days in the year, when summoned by the king, either on home or foreign service. The baron led his own knights, and the host was marshalled by the constable and marshal, those knights who held immediately of the crown, appearing with the militia under the sheriff. 3. These levies were further supplemented in time of war by foreign mercenaries of footmen and archers. Thus William I hired mercenaries to resist the invasion of Canute of Denmark in 1085, and Stephen's employment of Flemish and Breton mercenaries at the outbreak of the Civil War alienated many of his partisans. We have spoken of the probable relation which the curia regis held to the commune concilium or national council. This national council is to be considered as a continuation of the Anglo-Saxon wittengemote under the character of a feudal court. Theoretically, all freeholders holding in chief of the crown were members, and on a few great occasions, as at the council of Salisbury in ten eighty five, such general musters would be made. But in those days. Attendance at the royal council was looked upon as a burden rather than a privilege, and its ordinary members would accordingly be confined to the archbishops, the bishops, abbots, earls, barons, and knights, and of these, probably only a limited number of the more important would ordinarily appear. The abbots and friars sat in virtue of their holding a barony of the king, the archbishops and bishops as being besides the chief advisers of the crown. The earls, originally the successors of the Anglo-Saxon earls, whose numbers at first small, were increased in the reigns of Henry I and Stephen, gained their dignity by special investiture of the sword of their country by the king. The proceeds of jurisdiction they shared with the sheriff receiving a third of the fines arising in the shire courts, The barons were the successors of the king's thanes of Anglo-Saxon times. They held in chief of the king and enjoyed a dignity sometimes personal, sometimes territorial. The class was composed of many grades, varying according to their personal qualifications, official duties, and extent of property. The knights, representing the old thanes, were really the lesser barons. In fact. The whole class of tenants by knight service. The powers of the council thus formed theoretically extended to legislation and taxation. The king acknowledged its counsel and consent in the former, and in the latter probably laid before it any plan for increasing the existing taxes. But practically, the king was absolute, and its counsel and consent a mere form. The council, however, still enjoyed certain powers. These courts were held annually on the festivals of Easter, Pentecost, and Christmas at the towns of Winchester, Gloucester, and Westminster, respectively, when the king wore his crown before his subjects. It formed a court of judicature for trying peers, as in the case of Waltheof in the reign of William I, and of Robert of Belem in that of Henry I. Here also the following business was transacted. The bishops were nominated— until Henry I granted the right of free election to the chapters. Here the earldoms and other dignities would be conferred, questions of policy discussed, and ecclesiastical canons ratified, though the archbishops often held an ecclesiastical council at the same time where the canons themselves would be prepared. Even in these matters, the council probably did little more than give its formal assent, and the only point in which its authority was practically exercised was in the election of the king. On those occasions, the royal authority was in abeyance, the nation resumed its rights, only to lose them again as soon as they had elected their future master. Thus the Norman king enjoyed an authority confined indeed within certain theoretical limits, but practically irresponsible and the government might be inaptly described as a despotism tempered by the elective principle. Of the administration of Normandy during this, as in the earlier period, we have but scanty evidence. All the authorities of which the grand coutumier of Normandy is the most important are of later compilation, and of original charters, rolls, or other documents there is a curious dearth we may be sure however that there was a close connection between england and normandy at this date though probably owing to the disturbed condition of the duchy england was considerably in advance we have noticed before the analogies between the curia regis in the exchequer of england and the curia ducis and exchequer of normandy no doubt england here borrowed largely especially in the forms of procedure from her foreign sister but so had she done from Anglo-Saxon institutions, and the debt of Normandy to England was probably as great. Of the municipal life in Normandy, again we know but little. We hear of sworn communes, and La had wrested privileges from William as early as 1073. But in common with the rest of France, the object of municipal freedom in Normandy was more distinctly political than in England, and a comparison of the few charters which remain leads us to the conclusion that, in this as in other matters, the advantage lay with England. In conclusion, the question how far England and Normandy borrowed each from the other will best be answered if we remember that it was a period of transition and of growth in both countries, and that the administrative systems of each country grew together. And of Section 27. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. in Encino, California, March 2022. End of The Normans in Europe by Arthur Henry Johnson.